and welcome to the Peaceful Pastures podcast, finding peace in the pastures, spending 10 minutes each day with your shepherd. I am Pastor Daniel Lewig, and this podcast is brought to you by Christ Countryside Ministries, the regional ministries of St. John's Hill Point, Trinity Lime Ridge, and Bethlehem Richland Center. On day two, we capture the context. We recognize our world today is just a little bit different than the world at the time of the Bible. There are customs, practices, idioms, descriptions of locations that are lost on us. On this day, we take the opportunity to explore the context of the chapters in front of us. Yesterday, we listened to chapters 9 through 12 of Genesis. Let's explore what's taking place surrounding this lesson. But first, let us begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, sanctify us through your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. As we look at the beginning of chapter 9, we see that God gives a blessing similar to the one that he gave in paradise. We hear that that blessing, that, that command to be fruitful and multiply, repeated here in the first verses of chapter 9. But notice the difference here in this chapter. No longer is this something that is given in perfection, but it reflects the fallen state of mankind and the sinful world. It reflects the hostility between man and creation. Instead of that perfect unity, we see the consequences of sin that God foretold to Adam being reflected here in that creation being at odds with man. We also see in just a few more verses the phrase image of God returning. And here it's being used in the context of the gift of life. It is stating that life is that precious gift of God, the time when a person can be restored to that perfect image, that time of grace, that life being so precious that God says nothing should ever take that life from anyone else. We see a special word being used in verse 12 as God speaks of a covenant that he is making with Noah and his family. That word covenant is a very special word in the Old Testament and New Testament. It is a most solemn and binding form of divine promise. It is a special word from God, first used here in Scripture, that, that tells the people, that tells Noah and his family of just how much they can trust in God's promise. In verse 13, we hear reference to the rainbow as Noah and his family left the ark and would be beginning their life on this, uh, on this earth. The rainbow became a fitting reminder of God's promise. It was a fitting reminder because it is associated with the ending of rain. A, a rainbow comes when rain ends. So the rainbow became a visible sign as a seal of the truthfulness of God's promise. And think about how much that visible sign was needed for Noah and his family. How much fear and trembling 
would there have been from Noah's family when they would see rain or hear thunder? That rainbow was a reminder of God's grace and and promise, God's grace and faithfulness to his promise. One thing that the Bible also records is it does not record these patriarchs, these fathers of faith in any other fashion than to show them for who they completely are. Their perspectives are not skewed. They're not lifted up on a pedestal, but they are shown to be at the same time saint and sinner. So also in chapter 9, verse 20, we deal with sinful immaturity. In unblinking honesty, the Bible makes no attempt to hide the sinful weakness of famous people of faith. And so in this account, we see that happening between Noah and over-drinking and his son's immaturity dealing with nakedness. We also see a foreshadowing about the people of, of Canaan, the descendants of Ham, and Israel, the descendants of Shem. This would be in the curse that Noah would proclaim at the end of this chapter. Chapter 10 is often referred to as the Table of Nations chapter. And there's a note from the People's Bible Commentary about this chapter 10 that I'll read to you at this time. A question everyone wants to know the answer to is this. Where did I come from? What is the origin of the human race? The very first chapter of Genesis answers that question conclusively. A question every student of history once answered is this. Where did the many nations of the world come from? If the world's billions have a common ancestor, why are there so many different national groupings? Moses, the author of the first five books of the Bible, answers these questions before focusing on the history of God's chosen people of Israel. We have his answer in chapter 10. This chapter is often referred to as the Table of Nations. It's part of what Moses calls the account of the sons of Noah, the fourth of the ten accounts that make up the book of Genesis. Moses had previously introduced us to Noah's three sons. Here he gives us the subsequent history of those three branches of Noah's family. Chapter 10 does not make for easy or interesting reading. There are many names, and we can't identify them all. You may very well be tempted simply to skip over a chapter like this. But before you do so, remember these two things. Number one, God wanted you to have this document. Number two, in all of literature, this is the only document of its kind, listing the geographical distributions of the human race by nation. Israel is the only nation of antiquity that preserved this information. The Table of Nations has been, dis- has been criticized for not being complete. Not all nations are described with the same degree of detail, nor should we expect this. Moses devotes more attention to those nations that stood in close relationship to the people of Israel. Since the table is inserted into Genesis just prior to the story of Abraham, we conclude that it represents the state of nations at that time. Chronologically, it follows the dispersion of people, dispersion of people at the Tower of Babel. 
So as we think about chapter 10, and, and like the People's Bible Commentary references here, it's important to understand that though it would be easy to skip over this chapter of, of names uh, and locations, it's important to understand what is being said here. It would be easy also to think about those first hearers of these five books of the Old Testament. With Moses being the author, these books, as this would have been put together, would have been provided to the people of Israel as they were on the brink of the promised land of preparing to enter Canaan. So the promises that we're getting ready to come to that are given to Abram beginning in chapter 12 and following, the people of Israel, as they are hearing these five books, are going to be seeing that fulfillment at that time. So chapter 10 is a critical chapter to not only showing a historical account, but how that historical account shapes those Israelites as they're hearing about the nations that are around them for them to understand who it is that these nations are that are going to be surrounding, that are in the promised land and in the the areas around them. Again, a number of verses are devoted to describing the Canaanites. In years to come, God's people were going to have a lot of contact with them. God later instructed the Israelites to dispossess the Canaanites, to occupy their homeland, and to eliminate them because of their vile idolatry. We can therefore understand why Moses not only includes them in the table of nations, but describes them in such detail. The other thing we should note about chapter 10 is some of the names that are mentioned here. Mizram is the Hebrew name for Egypt. So when we see that name Mizram, we can understand it's talking about the, the nation of Egypt. Shinar is the Hebrew name for Babylon. Egypt and Babylon are names that are more familiar to us today. Chapter 11 describes the first of many attempts for mankind to have dominion over the world without God. It's interesting to note here that multiple languages are not attributed to the innovation of man, but a result of their sinful stubbornness. In chapter 11, we are also introduced to a city by the name of Ur. Ur is one of the first great discoveries of modern archaeology. It has revealed this city to be that had an advanced and sophisticated culture. It is located west of the Euphrates in what today is roughly southern Iraq. It also showed the existence of many heathen temples. This prominent city is where Abram and his family lived and then was called to go to a different land where God would lead. One of the things that we should also note before we continue on, is how we are starting to see shortened lifespans. People's lives are not extending as long as they did before the flood. But in chapter 11, verse 27, and then following, we are introduced to a man named Terah and also to Abram. One of the things that we can see about something's importance is how long someone writes about that particular person or subject. 
beginning in chapter 11, verse 27, it will be the next 13 chapters that cover the life of Abram. As God now describes in detail the history of the nation of Israel. Someone might ask why Terah is noted here first, not Abram. And the reason is pretty simple in in Hebrew culture. Number one, Terah, Abram's father, was the head of this important family who we meet. Terah is also referenced because we meet members of Terah's family who were not descendants of Abram, Lot being one of them. In the interest of his magnificent plan for the human race, God gave Abram a whole cluster of promises centering in the Savior and trained him to trust those promises. In chapter 12, God gives Abram the promise that from him the promised seed would come, that he would be blessed with children beyond what he could count. And as we look at Abram's journey of faith, we note that it is not a journey that is without winding roads and valleys. As the final portion of our chapters together highlight Abram's faith wavering when it came to the beauty of his wife, Sarai. Instead of trusting in God's plan, instead of calling out to God for guidance and direction as they dealt with a, as they dealt with a drought and famine, that took them down to Egypt. Abram took matters into his own hands. Again, what we see is the Bible showing individuals who are at the same times saint and sinner. And we also see the patient love of God and also the God who would protect that promised seed. Why was it so important that nothing happened to Sarah? Why was it so important to make sure that it was only through her and Abram, that they were together because that's the promised line of the Savior. That that line could not be put into question at all because that was how God was going to fulfill his promise to send the promised seed of the Savior, the seed of Eve, to crush the serpent's head. Again, it can be very easy for us to put these famous figures of faith on pedestals. But when we see them also falling into sin, it is much easier for us to see the loving grace of God, his hand of forgiveness, that continues to reach out to you and me. This wraps up today's podcast. We invite you to join in next time and take the opportunity to share our podcast with someone in your life who could use some peace in the pastures. You can find our podcast on all major podcasting platforms. If you have any questions, feel free to contact us at Christ Countryside Wells, W-E-L-S, at yahoo.com. Our podcast is brought to you by Christ Countryside Ministries, the regional ministry of St. John's Hill Point, Trinity Lime Ridge, and Bethlehem Richland Center. Music used with permission from Koine, part of their soundtrack to Oh That the Lord Would Guide My Ways. You can find their music on iTunes and many other online musical stores. Scripture used in this podcast is from the Evangelical Heritage Version, used with permission from the Wartburg Project. This is Pastor Daniel Lewig wishing you God's richest blessings on your day.